Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. In the coming months, you might notice a purple, green, and gold roadside marker pop up in your community or along your commute. They're part of a national program marking sites, people, and events that were crucial to the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. For this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society talked to Joni DiMartino, Connecticut State Coordinator for the National Votes for Women Trail. They discussed the origin of the marker program and the criteria that went into choosing the Connecticut people and places honored with the marker. In addition, Joni shares her thoughts on why markers matter and what the story of the suffrage movement can teach us about social justice movements today. Hello, Joni. Thanks for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. So I thought the first thing I'd like to ask you is, um, can you tell us about what is the National Votes for Women Trail and how did you get involved in it? Sure. Uh, The National Votes for Women Trail uh, started out very humbly as uh, part of an initiative that was established by the National Collaborative for Women's History Sites, which is a national organization that works on uh, preservation and um, issues related to, to women's history sites throughout the nation. And the idea in 2015 was to create a database of any connection to suffrage throughout states. So it could be everything from a special place where um, um, meetings were held, um, a significant lecture happened, the home of somebody very prominent in that state. So it it could also actually include anti-suffragists as well because they they impacted uh, the suffrage movement also in their, their opposition to it. So a database started online and that was going to be kind of the, the go-to location um, for people that wanted to know more maybe about a specific state or uh, they have many different ways you can um, research and filter information. But what happened was the William G. Pomeroy Foundation found out about this. And um, they are a uh, marker organization. So roadside markers that you usually see. Uh, they fund and uh, have the markers created. Uh, they do have a very rigorous process um, for uh, getting mark- marker approval as far as um, uh, you know, making sure you have primary sources and you can document what you're actually saying on the marker. Um, so they're kind of the gold standard of of historic markers. Um, They offered each state five markers for free. So that was a very exciting moment. I was brought in uh, before that. It must have been maybe 2016, 2017. My background is actually in the progressive era women's suffrage movement. That's what I did my scholarship on um, when I was working on my master's uh, down at Rutgers um, in the, the late 1990s. But at the time, I was also doing work study and uh, internships and volunteering um, with what was then the Alice Paul Centennial Foundation, which is now the Alice Paul Institute. And uh, so I'm still connected with them. And uh, I, so I, they, they actually reached out to me early on and said, you know, this database was being started. Would I be interested in, you know, kind of just pulling together and occasionally, you know, posting things on um, uh, women in Connecticut? 
it in the suffrage movement? And I said, yeah, absolutely, sure. So I'd started that way. And then once, you know, this Pomeroy marker uh, opportunity happened, you know, we were asked to uh, select people to be represented in the markers or events to locations. And when the Federal Women's Suffrage Commission became established um, on the, 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 the national level, they funded researchers for this project, which I was frankly a little relieved about because uh, they were really able to spend time because at that point I had been hired full time um, at the Prudence Crandall Museum. And so my time to donate to this project was limited just as it started really um, uh, burgeoning. So I worked with a, a researcher and the director of the project that they had hired as well. So there was paid staff to work on the project and a research that had, there were several researchers, of course, and, you know, there was one that was kind of for the New England region, and her name was Ann Fow. And so I had worked with her, how we determined, you know, who uh, we were going to select. And, and she did a lot of the, the digital um, online legwork for getting the primary sources and, and um, assisting me with filling out the applications. And then I was also asked as part of the, the role that I was doing as the state coordinator to serve on the um, Connecticut uh, Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. And so um, a lot of these markers were, were established uh, with, uh, you know, state officials involvement and participation because of um, their awareness of the project. So you've had a busy couple of years. <laughs> It's it's been unbelievable. Um, this is how I've been, you know, spending Labor Day weekends. I remember um, the original goal when they started the databases that, uh, and it was just the the humble online one, is that they wanted two thousand and twenty uh, sites or locations listed by twenty twenty, and. You know, it, it, we were we were kind of close to that, but because our work took a different turn on the, the marker project, a lot of that kind of lagged behind. So, I re I just remember it was like the the week between like Christmas and New Year's, and I ended up with like the worst toothache, and I have this throbbing toothache, and I'm trying to hurry up and type in before the January first, 2020 deadline. <laughs> so yeah, there 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 have been some some moments, but um, it it's been just an amazing exploration, I think, really of of Connecticut's women's suffrage history. How many markers did Connecticut receive total in this program? We ended up getting eight. And I'm very excited about that because like I mentioned earlier, we are, were originally only uh, slated five, but then um, when the Pomeroy Foundation really discovered just, you know, the, the work that everybody was putting into it and how exciting it was, the attention it was getting, that they actually said at one point, we're, we're going to lift the, the maximum capacity here and, and just continue to apply. Um, and so I was able to, to get us eight markers, which I was very excited about. But I suppose the, the really agonizing part of this was deciding which eight people or places or events get commemoration. So can you explain like your rationale for who got chosen or which ones got chosen and why? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's an excellent point, too, um, because as I mentioned earlier, um, not only Pomeroy, but the National Collaborative had created, you know, specific um, and very rigorous standards uh, for um, accepting these markers. And when they would look at a state, both had separate advisory committees um, as well. And um, the Pomeroy Foundation also had an evaluator that did the final confirming all the research. 
But the advisory committee for the National Collaborative, they wanted to make sure that each state was as diverse as possible. And with the suffrage movement, there are many different ways to define diversity. Obviously, race was important class was important, but also region within the state. And then also um, many people don't really realize this. The, the, the suffrage movement lasted 72 years. If you want to go to the kind of what, what's the, the kind of noted date of 1848, I know that there are, there are scholars um, that argue for other dates. And, and that's, that's you know, totally fine and, and understandable because there were other suffrage activities happening pre- Declaration of Sentiments in Seneca Falls in 1848, but that's kind of the traditionally known date up to 1920. And again, that expands also because not all women got the right to vote in 1920. So having said that, um, with that large span of time, almost 100 years, it was 72 years, we needed to make sure that both 20th century women were represented and men, as well as 19th century as well. So we needed to make sure we were covering both kind of um, waves of the suffrage movement, as well as I mentioned, region, race, class, and uh, you know other other possible ways to make this as as accessible and um, as diverse as possible. So, having said that, one of the challenges actually with Connecticut is that we were rather slow in the the 19th century to get really excited about suffrage. I think on a on a state level, there were people who were active in the movement. Um, Isabella Beecher Hooker uh, launched the Connecticut Woman Suffrage Association in 1869, and so she is. She will have a marker. Um, we are hoping to dedicate that, um, and I'm working with the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, of course, sometime in August, but I'm, that's kind of up in the air because right now the markers are a little behind just simply because of supply issues. So um, we're hoping to, to have it soon, but if that doesn't happen, it will be eventually when, when the marker does arrive. But having said that, Isabel Beecher Hooker uh, received a marker. She was from the 19th century, but Emily Pearson also received a marker with the Cromwell Historical Society leading that, that initiative. And part of the reason that, that she was selected for this marker is that she launched really new initiatives at the time for marketing and branding um, suffrage events that she helped change the membership, the size of the membership from 300 in 1910 to like 38,000 women in Connecticut by 1917. Um, and that's, that's uh, you know, just phenomenal numbers. Um, so, you know, you're seeing by 1910 up through 1920, this significant increase that's not occurring in the 19th century. So it was actually a little harder to find representation for the 19th century. And I had to make that argument in Connecticut uh, to the advisory committee because at the at the National Collaborative because we had a lot more 20th century markers that, that were established. Do we have a sense of what the older generation of suffragists thought about this updated branding? I think it was a mixed bag. I think on the one hand, when your membership increases like that, and I'm and I'm speaking kind of overall, I'm not speaking specifically for Connecticut. 
Yeah, I, I think they're on the one hand, they were they were pleased to see that energy. But on the other hand, some of the tactics that were taken on the national level with Alice Paul, for example, creating the National Women's Party, um, you know, she's literally dropped out of the history of woman suffrage. I mean, you know, she's she's kind of written out of history a bit uh, by the movement itself, because it's really the NASA, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, that's keeping the history. And they're not comfortable with her tactics of picking the White House and uh, the Watchfires for Freedom. So, you know, they are making sure that that, that that's not what's really remembered about the women's suffrage movement. Um, in Connecticut, interestingly enough, uh, we're, we're one of the states, I can't say we're the only state because I don't know, but we, we are one of the states where that that disagreement doesn't happen so much. Uh, it seems that the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association and the Connecticut coordinators for the National Women's Party actually collaborate and work together. And that's that's actually unusual in most of the states. Uh, but Catherine Houghton Hepburn was one of the reasons for that. And she is the president of the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association until 19, 1917. And then when she steps aside, she actually says that she feels that the Women's Suffrage Association is not uh, radical enough and that she wants to get more uh, involved in more significant ways. So she becomes uh, kind of head of the, the National Women's Party branch in Connecticut. But she can she, she keeps those connections open. And so the women are, are collaborating, they're working together. They're really viewing it as um, the one cause that they're, that they're working together on as opposed to um, really kind of splitting into two separate factions, as you see on a much more national level. So that's been unique. And I think it also kind of impacted some of the, the markers that we that we dedicated to that I'd, I'd like to mention uh, in relation to that, that are actually just kind of personally dear to me because of um, the, the history that I've, I've studied for so long. One we just dedicated at the very end of April on April 30th was in Bridgeport, and that marker, while the marker's name on it says Elsie Vervain, um, it recognizes Elsie and the four other women who went to Washington, D.C. Um, as part of the National Women's Party. And they did picket the White House and they participated in 1919 in what were, no, what were known as the Watchfires for Freedom. Essentially, when Wilson, President uh, Woodrow Wilson, was making speeches after World War One, on the importance of democracy in Europe, they were publicly reading his speeches aloud and burning them, pointing out the hypocrisy that women, not all women, had democracy at home in the United States. Um, and of course, that was, you know, again, a very, very public stunt. Four, five women from Bridgeport went down and participated in that. But these women were wage-earning women. They were not the kind of traditional, when you think of suffragists, they were usually um, wealthy, they were white. Um, they had the time in their day to participate in, in these causes. Access to the right to vote is important to everyone. And, you know, these, these women argued as, as wage earners, it was, you know, even more important to them. But they went down with the support of their union and they participated in this event. They were arrested. They spent time in jail. They um, uh, went on a hunger strike. They were released. Uh, and then they came back and, you know, participated in um, 
talks and lectures and interviews with newspapers, really sharing their story and sharing their experience. Incidentally, they did also get to meet with someone who was not the president or the vice president, but they did meet with somebody at the White House. And what they talked about were concerns on unemployment right after the war, because they were munitions workers. The unemployment rate is increasing in Bridgeport because there, there's there's no longer you know, a need to make munitions the way that they did during the war. And so that was their concern. I'm, I'm willing to bet that Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Catt were not talking <laughs> to the White House about issues related to unemployment. So you see right there the political need for their voices to be heard. So that that was one marker that was very important to me. And, and I think the other one, they were all really important to me, but the ones that just kind of touched my heart a little bit. Um, uh, the other one that I thought was very significant was the one that uh, we're actually working together, Natalie, on uh, with the um, Union Station marker, the Catherine Houghton Hepburn and Emmeline Pankhurst uh, marker. And uh, that one, basically, it, it um, recognizes the place where Houghton Hepburn and the suffragists met Emmeline Pankhurst, who was the head of the uh, Women's Social and Political Union in England. They met her when she arrives off of a train in 1913, as she is doing a lecture tour in the United States. And it turns out that Pankhurst, although she's English, gives her most prominent, her most well-known speech called Freedom or Death in Hartford, Connecticut. It, it just happened that way. That that meeting of um, the two women from the two nations in support of suffrage in both places um, really highlights that transatlantic connection and collaboration between the, the organizations on um, an international level. And um, I was very proud of the fact that when the advisory committee from the National Collaborative responded um, in support of this, they said that uh, they were excited as well because it was the first marker, uh, the only one that they knew of that mentions that transatlantic connection. And so there was some question on whether or not we were going to get uh, be allowed to put Emily Pankhurst's name on the marker as well, because, of course, this is the national votes for women trail. It's supposed to focus on American suffragists. But um, England and that communication network did um, have a significant impact on the American movement because, as I mentioned Alice Paul earlier, she and um, her uh, uh, kind of co-leader with the National Women's Party, Lucy Burns, actually learned their tactics under Emmeline Panker. So there's this wider, I guess, ripple effect uh, that occurred. So very clearly, these uh, organizations and these women um, were communicating and talking and, and sharing ideas and, and uh, how to put their arguments forward on behalf of votes for women. Yeah, I think it's really I think it's really important that uh, Pankers be included there because so many social reform movements and political movements in America, you know, we as Americans, we, we like to think we, you know, we originated all the good ideas out there. <laughs> and, and American history is often taught that way. But you know, when you delve down into it, people active in the civil rights movement for racial justice were working with and learning from anti-colonial activists in Africa in the 1950s and 60s. You have, I mean, the American revolutionaries were getting some of their best ideas and a lot of their money once the war broke out from France. So, so much of this is, um, right, it is, America exists in an international context as much as we sometimes like to pretend we're somehow outside that. That's just me editorializing, but it does seem 
a, like a very useful corrective to remind people that no, no, like the American suffragists were getting some of their ideas and some of their tactics, although our suffragists never went as extreme in their protests, right? There was no bombing. Um, nothing got set on fire here in America, as far as I know, in the American suffrage uh, movement. But but right, they're getting their ideas from people like Pankhurst. Um, her speech, if anyone is listening who has never read that, I read it a, a first time, really for the first time a few years ago. And I was really taken aback by how extreme her rhetoric was. I mean, she says things like, if I were a soldier, if I were a man and I were here telling you I'm fighting for my freedom, you'd applaud me. But because I'm a woman, you dismiss me as mentally incompetent. And, you know, again, that's pretty radical stuff for over 100 years ago. Yeah, it was it was her version of give me liberty or give me death, essentially. Yes. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Something, something I was thinking about too is when we were talking about the generational differences between the, the activists is the way that every social movement in America, when we teach about them, we tend to teach them as a monolith, but all you have to do is scratch the surface, read any book about any social justice movement in America, and you will see how torn the movements are from within in terms of tactics and strategy and even sometimes goals. And sometimes that's a class divide. Sometimes it's a it has to do with people's um, experiences because of their racial identity, their regional identity, um, you know, what we would call intersectionality. And so when you're talking about those Bridgeport suffragists whose main concern when they get a chance to talk to the White House is is employment. They're coming at this from the perspective of women who need to earn a living. Um, it really, again, when you when you look at current movements going on right now and how chaotic it can seem and, you know, who's in charge, who's doing what, what are we working for here? It's, I guess, heartening to see that movements that have had success in the past have also been rent by these interior squabbles. I don't want to say squabbles. It's not the right word. I mean, valid arguments. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I and I think that part of the the issues that are happening today within current kind of progressive, uh, you know, it, it's social justice movements is that we haven't studied that history. So when we come up against this, where, you know, tactics are, are maybe, you know, um, under under discussion or there's contention um, about how to uh, go forward in a certain way. And like you said, even even the goals themselves, we, we, we lose the language for that. We lose the ability to um, to be able to move forward and, and, and figure that out. We're reinventing the wheel constantly on how our social movements work together uh, because or, or can move forward because we've lost the studying of how they've done it in the past. Yeah, I, I, I think that social justice movements as a whole can be studied in more detail to give us more of a, a path of understanding going forward and how we handle contemporary movements today. Yeah, and to teach people whatever social reform, whatever way you think America can be improved and, you know, justice and fairness and all that, to keep a sense of optimism that when the group that's working toward a certain goal 
you know, when people are arguing and they're not getting along and they're accusing each other of, you know, not really keeping the faith, that's okay. It's part, it's par for the course. It happens. And past movements have shown us that real positive change can be made. Yeah. Yeah. And you're mentioning generations and, you know, the two women kind of most connected to the 19th century movement, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and and Susan B. Anthony, who, of course, came with their flaws of, you know, the the time period that they lived in. And and they, I, I think at times, definitely chose to wear blinders. But they started the movement. It shifted different times along with them but they didn't live to see the end of it. So you can imagine spending your entire life not working on, you know, working on something and then not seeing that final result happen. And so, you know, when, when, if you get involved into a movement today thinking, oh, this is going to be done in about five to 10 years, sometimes it can take more decades than that. And, and, and I think we see that more and more often with, um, I think 20th century movements at times do um, tend to, to take a little bit longer than, uh, what what we would like to see. And then there's, you know, there's, there's the swing of the backlash and then, you know, having to work toward again as as well. Um, Susan B. Anthony said something um, interesting. I think it was related to the Married Women's Property Act, actually, at that time. And she said, you know, we can't just gain what 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 we've gained. We have to be ever vigilant so we do not lose what what those gains were. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that in contemporary times where uh, people that may be opposed to a lot of progressive gains are are working just as hard to make sure that uh, that they become removed in the future. So yeah, there's there's some vigilance that needs to happen there too, as well as um, continuing to work toward equality and justice. So with what you just said, it makes me think of Catherine Ludington because she is one of the women who did live to see suffrage, you know, this goal, her goal, she gets what she wants. And then what do you do with the rest of your life, right? Like, how do you, how do you keep what do you do? And so she goes and helps found the League of Women Voters. Yes, yes, and and that was um, that was uh, Carrie Chapman Cat's vision after uh, suffrage was won. So as as you know, even before ratification, she's already putting something in place to be able to shift her organization um, to to kind of still utilize and 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 mobilize the numbers of of people that she has involved in her organization to continue to to move forward positively in in, in civics. So she does create the the League of Women Voters um, and Catherine Ludington, as you mentioned, who was the president of the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association at the time um, the 19th Amendment is uh, ratified. So it's interesting. We actually, you know, we have markers that bracket the the woman who founded the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association and the woman that kind of sees it through. Um, I do want to mention, too, that um, also it was not just me and Anne at times, like making the determination on these markers with Denise Ireton, who was the, the director uh, that they had hired for the project, the, the National Collaborative hired. When, when communities came forward to um, put you know, uh, their, their um, uh, person under consideration if we felt that it, it could meet the, the primary source criteria. And I have to mention, too, that, that one of the key factors there was also having made a significant contribution in the state. It couldn't be somebody in your community that signed a couple petitions. It had to be somebody that um, uh, made um, a significant contribution um, within the state. Uh, so um, when Old Lyme Historical Society came forward and wanted the Catherine 
and Ludington marker, we thought, yes, yes, absolutely. So let's let's work on that together. Um, there was a high school that had read the yellow wallpaper um, by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And um, they uh, wanted to, to do a marker. So we worked with that um, high school class. And uh, we even had one of, um, and it was it was a significant process, not just doing the research, but you know you also have to get approval to have you know you have to have land permission to put these markers in place. You can't just put it on a homeowner's property or a piece of city property and just <laughs> decide to to put a marker up. Um, so one of the students did speak in front of the uh, the, the Hartford um, Council. I apologize, I don't know their their full title, but um, it's the one that oversees kind of the you know the certain districts and um, uh, the the city works, but uh, the high school student, you know, spoke in, in front of the council. And what an experience for them to, to be able to do that and to see civics in action that way. And uh, of course, the, the marker fortunately was approved, but I actually had to put a stop on that because I needed to check with California to make sure because Charlotte Perkins Gilman lived a large portion of her life in California. And I thought we won't get our marker through Pomeroy if they, they, you know, California had a marker already as well or was working on a marker. So fortunately, she was not one of their choices. So we were able to get the marker here in Hartford, which again, will, will go up in the, the next year or so. Um, so, you know, it was very exciting to see communities. And I mention all of this because a lot of this came together with Norwalk because the Hill Sisters were originally on our kind of um, first list uh, when we kind of brainstormed suffragists that should be honored in this way. And we we removed them because um, Helena Hill Weed and Elsie Hill were more involved in the national prominence. Uh, They were involved in D.C. They worked very closely with Alice Paul. Um, Alice Paul later after Uh, suffrage was passed, ends up purchasing a house in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where she lives for a little while with Elsie Hill. So um, you see that kind of more of a national. So they didn't do so much on the state. And uh, Norwalk pushed back and said, you know, we're we're going to disagree with you on this. And we think Clara Hill should be our connection here. And it turns out that Clara Hill, the third sister, did significant work in the state. And when she approached the Connecticut Woman Suffrage Association, she said, give me the hard work, give me the stuff that's difficult. That's what I want to do, uh, which kind of pairs with her sisters who are, you know, serving jail time in D.C. Uh, for picketing the White House. So they, they, um, they were not simply signing petitions and writing letters either. So uh, Leah did end up applying for a Hill Sisters marker and, and did get one in, in Norwalk as well. Um, at this point, we've talked about every marker, and I think it's very important to mention Mary Townsend Seymour, uh, African-American suffragist who was also getting a marker. She founded the the NAACP and uh, or, or a chapter, the Hartford chapter of the NAACP in Connecticut. And she was extremely supportive of suffrage as well. I know there was one story that um, we made sure was part of our primary documents packet um, where there's a talk in Hartford and she comes forward and donates $5 um, from the NAACP or on behalf of the NAACP to um, the suffrage movement, making it very clear um, that both she and uh, the women of her organization uh, were supporting suffrage as well. And um, she is, I, I don't know when exactly her marker will be dedicated. Again, the publicity will be coming out at different times when we dedicate the markers, but uh, I'm very excited that, that we were able to uh, work with Dr. Brittany Yancey and, and uh, get that marker as well.
And in fact, I have to plug my own organization because CHS did work, did work with uh, Dr. Yancey uh, at Goodwin University on a project looking into women of color who participated in the suffrage movement in Connecticut. And Mary Townsend Seymour is sort of the, she's the best known of those women and certainly very influential, but, but there are others as well. And you can find some of that information up on our website, chs.org. Mary Seymour is a really interesting person to me because she's another one of these people who's working equally as hard for the rights of workers. You know, she organizes tobacco workers shortly after. She runs for, I think, Secretary of State in 1920. So she's the first woman of color to run for a statewide office. And then she kind of goes quiet. Like she seems for much of like her later years goes quiet. But honestly, that's, you know, the stuff she did um, in the teens and 20s is it's enough. It's a lot of activism for one lifetime. But again, that an example of that intersectionality um, where, you know, you think about living in that time period, you know, what are the identities that are most important to you and most affect you and what ways did they affect you? You've kind of already, I think, said this in talking about why it's important that we learn about these, this history. But can you tell me a little bit about why you think the marker program itself is important? Yes. And you know, I think it's it's one of the very few marker programs that exist that actually honor women. And, you know, most of the markers are about military events um, or possibly economic or political events. But but this is one where where women are specifically recognized for their own agency. And, uh, you know, the markers themselves First of all, they're they're the colors of the suffrage movement. They're purple, white, and yellow. So they're they're beautiful. They're bright. They're attention getting. They're not kind of a very standard brown um, or or gray that you usually see with uh, markers. But you know, you're driving by and you're recognizing that something important happened here. And I, I think that that's why these historic markers are wonderful. And then I think they're also kind of like stamp programs. You know, where people get involved. And after you've seen several of these markers, then when you travel to another state, you either recognize recognize a marker or maybe you specifically look for them um, and visit. So uh, I, I don't want to, you know, neglect the fact there is a little bit of tourism here as well that I think is important that can generate attention in a community um, because somebody did something in, incredible that impacted millions of people's lives uh, uh, later, you know, down the road. And, and I think that uh, the markers kind of help recognize that too. But um, just, you know, simply someplace that I may be walking by, um, somebody gave a, a, a lecture maybe or held a meeting or stood in, and held out pamphlets that um, later, you know, gives you know, half the population the right to vote um, yeah. is, is, I think, pretty significant. And I think it just goes back to the idea that um, people tend to think of history as something that happens outside themselves and in faraway places. But as we walk through the landscape of our state, we are walking through spots where people have done mighty things in the past and sometimes everyday things, but things that are important. Everyone out there should be keeping eyes peeled for the appearance of these purple, white, and yellow markers. Um, sometime with supply chain willing, sometime <laughs> in the next maybe year or so. Is that a good, or do we want to say a little more than that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping so. Um, the The reality is, is that the foundry is backed up, and they formally ended applications for this process um, at the end of January of this year. So you can imagine that, and, and we're not the only markers that they're doing. Um, right. And they're doing other markers in Connecticut too. They have a Rochambeau Trail. 
Um, and I and I do want to to walk back something that I said, or not walk back, but but address it. You know, when I said giving half the you know you know women the you. Know, the right to vote. I do want to make very clear that that we we do acknowledge with the National Collaborative and this prog uh, this this project that not all women got the right to vote in 1920. And I think that is very important to say. You know, um, Indigenous women, African American women, um, Asian American women did not all get the right to vote in 1920. There were other laws and acts that had to be passed. And um, women in particular, African-American women in the South ran into the same Jim Crow laws that kept African-American men from voting after the 15th Amendment was, was passed. And I, I think that that's important to say every time we have conversations about this, it, it needs people should be reminded of that as well. And as far as uh, the, the markers go, yes, I'm, I'm hoping within the next year, because, you know, we, we do plan dedication ceremonies. We don't just, you know, put up a marker. We do we do have uh, special events where um, we, we feature uh, some music or some, you know, recitation of some speeches that um, somebody connected to that particular marker may have shared. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely kind of dedication ceremony that, that we have in, in connection with this. So um, hopefully, some of your listeners can come and uh, learn a little bit more about that and, and participate too. Um, because of the magic of technology that we have today, there are QR codes that are added to these markers. So um, if people can easily use their smartphones, um, if they have access to one to uh, locate um, uh, more information right there while they're standing there about this particular person or event. Um, and again, the database is still on the uh, National Collaborative for uh, Women's History site on their website as well that, that, that can be accessed to. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. To learn more about the National Votes for Women Trail and to see where you might find a marker in your community, go to ncwhs.org. And we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.